I'm Speech Thomas from the hip-hop crew Arrested Development. On the new VPM podcast, Track Change, I take you behind the walls of Richmond City Jail, where I help four men record an album and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Subscribe to Track Change in your podcast app. From Story Mechanics and VPM. Previously on Admissible. I always look at Miss Burton as a person that saw the future when no one else did. I think she knew that DNA was going to be admissible. Mary Jane Burton, sort of the angel of the Virginia Innocence Movement. Thirteen people were exonerated. That's a big number. That's a big, as Joe Biden would say, a big f***ing deal, okay? I think there were a couple of concerns that I recall about Mary Jane Burton. There was an internal whistleblower, another lab worker, who had complained about her work. Mary Jane Burton was a lying piece of How's that for you? She was a nasty, evil woman. Um, hi, my name is Tessa Kramer. I'm a journalist in New York. Um, I'm looking for Miss Regina. My reporting partner Sophie Behrman and I had heard rumors of a whistleblower who complained about Mary Jane Burton, Virginia's chief serologist, back in the 1970s. This is so different from everything we've heard about Mary Jane, so we're not sure what to believe. But we managed to reach the whistleblower. Gina Demas. Um, well, we came across your name in an article. Let me tell you something about that article before we even go any further. Please. I talked to that woman, and I told her a bunch of stuff, and I thought it made me look like some kind of whack job. I mean, Gina is an outlier in this article. It's from the early 2000s, right after the state of Virginia discovered that Burton had saved thousands of bits of evidence in her case files. Evidence that would be used to clear 13 innocent men. Everyone quoted speaks super highly of Mary Jane Burton, except Gina. The head of the lab, Dr. Paul Ferrara, the guy who discovered those bits of evidence, he says he investigated and he never found any proof of Gina's claims. Ferrara died in 2011, so we couldn't ask him or Mary Jane Burton about this. Other coworkers said the dispute boiled down to a personality conflict. Whatever the case, Gina is clearly pissed about how Mary Jane Burton has been covered in the media. Yeah, but now they're saying, thank God for Mary Jane Burton. Bull-. You know, ended up just decimating each other, the two of us. This is a story that will scare the bejesus out of you. We head down to Western Virginia to meet Gina. It's a freezing cold evening in early January. We're driving down this suburban block looking for her address. And there's one house with a porch lit up with black lights. And we realize that's Gina's house. Sorry about the black lights. I forgot to switch them out after Halloween. I'm Tessa Kramer, and this is Admissible. Sorry about the 
a jumble. I'm still in Christmas. I've got we set up in Gina's dining room, which, by the way, is full of wine bottles on every surface. Gina's a traveling wine saleswoman. She had just gotten back the night before. I'm not putting up a Christmas tree, so I got these red streaks put in my hair. I said, okay, I'll decorate my head if I'm not going to put a tree up. As we sit down, Gina takes out her college yearbook. The reason I pulled this out is because I found a picture from the police station. (laughs) She points to a black and white photo of a police officer leaning against a patrol car, surrounded by students in bell bottoms and big collars. All the girls have Farrah Fawcett haircuts. And that's the police. They brought the police car so we could take a picture with it. Gina points to a girl standing next to the officer. She's in her early 20s, holding the officer's walkie-talkie and beaming from ear to ear. That's me there. That's you? Yeah, that's me. What year was this? This is when I was uh, working in the lab in Charlotte. That's where I met Mary Jane. In the early 70s, before she was hired as the chief serologist in Virginia, Mary Jane Burton worked at a crime lab in Charlotte, North Carolina. Gina was a sophomore in college when she saw a posting about an internship at that crime lab. And I thought, ooh, that's kind of cool to work in a lab in the police station. Big Perry Mason fan, right? Gina says she interviewed with Mary Jane. They hit it off, and Mary Jane became her mentor. Nice lady. We were good friends. I had dinner with her a few times. The only thing I remember is the spinach souffle from Stouffer's because I'd never had it before. (laughs) She had a big laugh, huge, loud laugh. It was great, you know. (laughs) Everybody would crack up when she started laughing. Sophie and I are kind of surprised to hear how well things started out between Gina and Mary Jane. She was everybody's hero. The police in Charlotte thought she was the greatest thing since sliced bread. She was like, Mary Jane is a legend. And, and I thought she was great, too. She was like your teacher. I mean, mm-hmm. She was my mentor. I learned how to do ABO typing on a slide. I might have learned origin determination from her and definitely phenolphthalein testing, benzidine. Okay, don't worry about all that lingo. The point here is that Mary Jane is teaching Gina the building blocks of serology the analysis of bodily fluids like blood and semen and saliva. Serology was used to narrow down a suspect pool, basically by eliminating people whose blood type didn't match the evidence found at a crime scene. Unlike DNA now, where it pretty much narrows it right down to that person. At that time, if you said somebody's blood type was A, that was 40 or 45 percent of the population. So that wasn't much help. If it was A negative, that was more help. If it was an EAP system, that was more help. If it was an haptoglobin, that was more help. And so EAP and haptoglobin are enzymes and markers in your bodily fluids that they could test for to help narrow things down more and more. So each system that you ran, especially if somebody had a rare blood type, it would take it from 1 in 10 million down to 1 in 5,000 maybe. Mary Jane also teaches Gina about hair and fiber analysis and Gina is loving it. She decides to follow in Mary Jane's footsteps with a career in forensic science. She majors in biochemistry and keeps interning at the lab throughout college. When she graduates, she starts looking for a job in the field. And how did you end up getting the job? For Mary Jane. 
By this point, Mary Jane's in Virginia, and she hires Gina as a serology trainee. I interviewed in North Carolina, and they didn't hire me because they asked me if I'd ever smoked pot, and I told them I tried it once, and so they didn't hire me because I was a pothead, I guess. (laughs) What am I going to do, lie? I'm going to start lying right out of the bat? (laughs) I didn't tell them I tried it with a policeman. In 1976, Gina moves to Richmond. By day, she's pursuing the career that she loves, and by night... I mean, I was in my 20s, and it was disco day. Where the lab was located was right down in the Shaco Slip area of Richmond, which was the hopping place to be. Because you're wearing a lab coat all day, you could wear your going-out clothes underneath and just rip your lab coat off and go about two blocks and you were there. My scotch and water would be sitting at the side of the bar. Doers with a twist. I used to teach disco lessons at lunchtime. The honeymoon phase doesn't last long. When I first started working with her, I went with her to court and it was a rape case. And when she got up and testified, if I didn't know what I knew, I would have thought she was saying... This hair came from this person and no other. And it bothered me. And so when we got back in the car, I said, Mary Jane, I said, you didn't actually say it was the suspect's hair, but it seemed like you were saying that, and we really can't tell. I said, what if the guy's not guilty? And she said, well, then the Commonwealth shouldn't be trying him. And I'm like, ah. I was like, oh, my gosh. You can't do that. My head was exploding. Bells and whistles were going off. After that conversation, Gina starts watching Mary Jane a little more closely. Gina was only a sophomore when she met Mary Jane, but by now... I got two more years of good biochem training. So when I got there, I was a different Gina. And the first thing I see is just sloppy no controls. This becomes a big deal, so I want to pause on controls for a second. Controls are huge in any science, but definitely in serology back in the day. Here's how one serologist, Gary Harmore, described it to me. For example, if you're from another planet and you come to Earth and you you have a rabbit and a chicken, and you don't know which is which because you've never seen either one before. So if you had a known rabbit and a known chicken, you'd be able to compare the two and say, hey, I know which one's a chicken and which one's a rabbit on these two unknown things because I've got these controls. It's very similar to what is done in uh, forensic serology. And before you even get to the point of testing the evidence, you have to run a few basic controls to make sure your tests are even working and that the evidence itself isn't giving you a false positive, which can happen. Because sometimes the materials were contaminated with detergent or dirt or whatever. Those contaminants could give you a reaction that looked like a particular blood type, but was actually completely meaningless. This all might sound a little bit nitpicky, but to a scientist, this is a huge deal. And shocking that someone like Mary Jane might have been skipping these steps. That was like biology 101. If I didn't run a positive and a negative control, who cares what I came up with? It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. So the most basic stuff was just missing. Yeah. You have to know your test is not contaminated and that it works. Gina says this was 
a pattern with Mary Jane. Always rushing things and cutting corners, trying to save money or get through cases faster. Here's one example. You were supposed to keep the gel in a test tube and check the temperature of it because you're dealing with proteins and enzymes. And if it's too hot, it will kill them. Mary Jane didn't want to wait to test the temperature, so she just poured it slowly down the test tube. And I'm like, Mary Jane, it's probably too hot. And she's like, well, by the time it gets to the end, the test tube is cool enough. I said, how do you know? And she wouldn't let us take the temperature of the gel. I mean, I would have flunked if I had turned in something like that, much less sent somebody to jail. Skipping over basic steps, it doesn't take a biochem degree to get why that matters. It got to the point where I felt like things were kind of serious. And so I made an appointment to talk to Warren Johnson, who was the head of the lab. Warren Johnson was the director of the lab. He was very handsome. I thought he was handsome anyway. He was old, but he was handsome. And he was a weenie, very politician-y, slimy, but he was nice looking. Johnson is in his 50s, coming off a 20-year stint as a special agent with the FBI, which Gina says was typical of the lab's management at the time. These people were ex-FBI people with polka dot ties. They all wore white shirts and polka dot ties. It was like J. Edgar Hoover. And obviously, oil and water didn't mix. This conflict within the lab, it's kind of a microcosm of the much bigger divides in the country. Gina started in 1976. This is post-Vietnam, post-Watergate, and it's a time of racial conflict as well. There were still riots over school desegregation happening around the country. And this is less than a decade after the Loving versus Virginia ruling, in which the Supreme Court finally struck down state laws banning interracial marriage. So, in the lab, when the 23-year-old disco queen goes to the ex-FBI guy complaining about scientific protocols, let's just say they don't see eye to eye. Warren's main take on that was that I was just unhappy because my boyfriend was in Charlotte. What? (laughs) That's what he said to me. You're just unhappy because your boyfriend is in Charlotte. Whether this was some classic 70s sexism or that generational tension or something else, Gina feels like Johnson is not interested in what she has to say. So she turns to someone else, the only other serologist in the lab besides Mary Jane, a woman named Joan Fonts. Joan didn't like the way she did some of her stuff. As Gina tells it, Joan shared her concerns about Mary Jane's practices, especially around a new technique they're using called electrophoresis. I remember learning about electrophoresis in my high school bio class, that thing where you put a sample on a gel plate and run an electric current through it, and that can separate out the molecules by size or electric charge. It can do that for the enzymes in your blood. Clear electrophoresis results showed a series of lines. Less clear results, though, require a bit of interpretation. And because this is so new, Gina, Joan, and Mary Jane are all kind of learning it together. So they'd run their tests, and then they'd look over the results together. Joan would read it, and then I'd read it, and we'd all 
try to figure out what it was. But sometimes it would just be a blur. Maybe it was detergent on the jeans or whatever. Or you'd just be really faint sometimes, and you're like, oh, I think it's this, it might be that. And I think that's probably where Joan first voiced her disagreements with Mary Jane, because Mary Jane would like call stuff that was like a big blob. <laughs> I'm like, what do you, you can't read that? Yes. That's not good enough. Making definitive calls, this bloodstain is type O. Instead of calling a murky result inconclusive, Gina says this was another pattern that they saw with Mary Jane. She was pushing the limits of her test because she was so determined to get a result. That's what was going on with the electrophoresis test, and there were other examples. Gina says that Mary Jane would set the magnification on their microscopes way too high. If she wasn't getting a result at the standard 7x, she would zoom in to like 30x. Essentially going too far is what it was. She had to make it work. Instead of coming back and saying, I'm sorry, I can't help. We don't have enough sample, you know, it's contaminated. And I mean, it wasn't like we were like testing to see if there was something in the water. People were going to jail. Okay, let's step back for a minute. These are some very serious allegations. And frankly, Sophie and I just don't know what to make of this. It's not that we don't believe Gina exactly. These are very specific things she's describing, and it's hard to imagine she's just pulling this out of thin air. At the same time, Mary Jane was the supervisor, and Gina was in training. So what if Gina's the one whose work wasn't up to par? And we know from Gina's sister that she lost her job over this. What if she's got an axe to grind? We start making calls to some other people who worked in the lab to see if anyone can corroborate Gina's story without much success. And then finally we reach someone who seems to know what we're talking about. We did speak with Gina, who was Gina Demas. Gina Demas. Gina Demas. And she she played a big role. (laughs) She's a real smart girl. I always felt for that that happened to her. After the break, how this all blew up. It sounds so outdated now, but we're called office service specialists, and I was assigned to serology. Shirley Patterson worked as the secretary for the serology lab in Richmond for more than 30 years, overlapping with both Mary Jane and Gina. Gina, she's a little spitfire. When she walks in a room, you just know she's in the room. Um, She was real bubbly. She was a people person. A lot of people like Gina. She wanted a big career, and she loved forensic. That's what she wanted to do. And Mary Jane? She almost struck me as like a commanding sergeant or something, you know. We asked Shirley what she remembers about what went down between Mary Jane and Gina. Um, All I know is that Gina was upset because some tests weren't being run properly. When did Gina sort of raise her concerns with you? Gina and I were friends. Um... I mean, we were in a carpool together and stuff. And then Deanne Dabbs came also. Deanne Dabbs was another serology trainee who started in 1977, about a year after Gina. So the three of them are driving to work every day, 
and Gina and Deanne start talking about Mary Jane and what's going on in the lab. Shirley's not a trained scientist, so she doesn't understand everything that Deanne and Gina were saying. They would discuss things, you know. Of course, some of it was like Greek to me, you know, but um, I didn't understand about the controls. That was a biggie. You have to run a control. I mean, even I would know that. Shirley caught wind of something else in those carpool rides, something about Mary Jane's lab notes. Something was wrong with the notes that she was keeping. Something about that the test said one thing and her notes said something else. This is where things come to a head. At some point, Gina starts to suspect that Mary Jane is reporting blood types to the police that don't match the results of her testing. The way things worked, the serologists would run their tests and write down the results in some record books in the lab, sometimes called bench notes. And then it was Shirley's job to type up those results into a report for the police. So, like, Mary Jane would come to me, and everything was done on a tape. You know, we had dictaphones back then. They were saying it in their words, but they wanted us to put on the paper. That's how things were supposed to work. But one day, Shirley finds Gina in the lab. Shirley was pissed. She's like spitting fire. She comes in and she says, Mary Jane's making me type this report over. She says, I made mistakes. I don't make mistakes, she says, which she really didn't. I was upset her saying that I didn't do something right. And I was like, well, that's not what you brought me, you know. I had the sheet, and I showed it to Gina. You know, I said, this is what it was. Mary Jane is accusing Shirley of typing up the wrong blood type. And Shirley's saying, "Um, no, I wrote what you had in your notes. She seemed to think that I had totally typed it wrong. And I said, no, I didn't. I typed what you said. I mean, that was something that was very important, certain blood types and certain secretions. And, I mean, you just don't get those wrong. They're not squabbling over some minor typo. This is about the suspect's blood type. And the next thing they know, Mary Jane's over at the paper shredder. She was at the shredder with the report, and she had Shirley type a new report and send it out. This crosses a line. So Gina turns to Dr. Paul Ferrara, a big name in our story and in the world of forensics. Ferrara would go on to become the director who'd usher the lab into the DNA era. With a degree of specificity uh, hitherto unknown in conventional uh, forensic science. Gina figures certainly this guy will understand why Mary Jane's behavior is so bad. But Ferrara says that they need more proof because the lab won't do anything with just one case. And we were like, wait a minute. It's not just one case. This was kind of stuff that was been going on, and because she was taking shortcuts or doing whatever she was doing, because she wasn't doing her stuff right to start with. So they hatch a plan. The day after the meeting with Dr. Ferrara, they photocopy Mary Jane's bench notes to look for any discrepancies with her reports. A few days go by, and then... We were working in the lab, and she came in, and she got the record books, and she was erasing stuff. We're like, can't erase stuff. And so we're, like, sitting there, 
what in the heck? The whole time she's erasing these books, she didn't know that we had already copied them. So then we waited till she left, and we copied the books again. And that's when we found all the stuff was changed. What was changed? Some of the blood types that were originally reported were changed. And is it possible that she reran? No. Because it takes all day to run it. Where were the samples? These things were just changed. If Gina collected all this evidence of what Mary Jane had done, where is it now? Obviously, we need proof of these allegations. So what happened to these photocopies? I carried those damn things around for I don't know how long. Gina tells us she used to have them, but she gave them to someone. I don't remember what her name was. And that was more than 15 years ago. Coming up this season on Admissible, we're going to track down that box of documents. Look at all this. This is a lot. This is a lot. And see what comes flying out. This is the worst kind of fraud that we always think exists, and everyone says, no, it doesn't. Well, I think the implications are huge. I think it calls into question the cases that she worked. I mean, all the cases, and she worked a lot of cases, a lot of cases. It's evidence tampering, frankly. I mean, they knew she was doing wrong. They just covered it up. They all covered all that up, knowing it was wrong. If you want to do that, there's mafias for that. (laughs) To destroy a man's life, to take away 21 years of his life, and you can't sit there and, and say that you was wrong? You can't admit to the fact that you was wrong? Produced and hosted by Tessa Kramer. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn. Original reporting by Tessa Kramer and Sophie Behrman. With additional reporting by Ben Pavier and Whitney Evans. Our editor is Danielle Elliott. With additional editing by Ellen Horn. Our production team is Dana Bialik, Chloe Wynn, Gilda DiCarli, Leslie Nyer, Kristen Vermilia, and Kim Naderfane-Peterson. Production legal by Craig Merritt and Ennis Smolanski. Gavin Wright is VPM's managing producer for podcast. Meg Lindholm is the director of podcast production. Sound design and mix by Charles Michelet. Music by Del Toro Sound and Story Mechanics. And with additional music by APM. Our theme music is by me, Brian J. Howard of Del Toro Sound. Contributions of music and performances by Jay Gonzalez, Carlton Owens, Nick Rosen, Matt Pistol-Stosel, Kevin Sweeney, and R. Sloan Simpson. Special thanks to Steve Humble, Paige Williams, Emil DeWeaver, Chiyoki E. Anson, Kelly Jones, Mangesh Hatikudor, Lulu Miller, Chenjerai Komenika, Kelly Prime, Nick Vanderkolk, John and Eileen Kramer, Adam Savage, Alexandra Cole, and iHeartMedia's Beth Ann Macaluso and Dylan Fagan. Admissible Season 1 Shreds of Evidence is produced by Story Mechanics and VPM, Virginia's home for public media. We are distributed by iHeartMedia. 
VPM.